All right, hey, why don't we get started now, okay? If you haven't already, please take your Bibles and let's uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are finally here in this chapter that begins a new section after having looked at chapter 11 the last several weeks uh, regarding head coverings and regarding uh, the celebration of the Lord's Supper. We looked at both of those sections in two parts. Those four lessons on chapter 11, um, probably because of my own verbosity and uh, ability to kind of fill space with words, as I'm doing now. Uh, Anyway, but uh, here we're going to be looking at a longer, another longer section in this uh, in this letter. You could tell the the yeah I mentioned this before at one point. You could tell the subjects that fired up the Apostle Paul because he talked a lot about them or wrote a lot about them. And of course, you know, divisions in the church, that really got him going, so he spends three and a half chapters on that. Um, idolatry, he spent three chapters on that. And now we're going to see spiritual gifts and conduct in the church service, and he spends three chapters on that as well. But uh, let us read the passage and then we'll get started here. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences in ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. There you go. Now what I'd like to start off with is as we begin this section on spiritual gifts, as I mentioned uh, before we read the scripture, it takes place over three chapters. And really in chapters 11 through 14, Paul is dealing with issues surrounding corporate worship in the church at Corinth. Now, he deals with the first two issues fairly quickly in chapter 11, the idea of head coverings and the idea of how they celebrate the Lord's Supper. But now he gets on to the third part of how they conduct corporate worship, and, and that third part revolves around the practice and use of spiritual gifts in the church. Now, again, like I said, this takes... Um, three chapters, so what I want to do is give you a little bit of a road map. But before I give you that road map, just flip over the page to chapter 14, and we're going to just look at a couple of verses in chapter 14, starting in verse 26. 
This is what the problem was, okay? Paul is trying to get to the heart of a problem that's going on in Corinth. And the problem is this. Their church order, their church services were a, a mess. They were a chaotic mess of disorder and dysfunction. Look at verse 26 of chapter 14. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. And so on and so forth. But then look at verse 33. For God is not the author of confusion or disorder, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now when I read this, it's pretty easy to sort of read between the lines and see what was going on at Corinth. And what was going on at Corinth was some crazy free-for-all. You had people singing psalms, you had people speaking in tongues, giving a teaching, doing a, a prophecy, an interpretation, a discernment of a prophecy, and it was kind of all going on at once, one big jumble, and Paul's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And what did Paul say? Whoa. Let's get some order here. The, this is the church of Jesus Christ. When we gather together for worship, we reflect Jesus Christ to the world. And if this is what is being reflected to the world, then what is being shown to the world is that Jesus Christ is a confused person. <laughs> that God is a God of confusion. That's why Paul will say he is not the author of confusion. He is not the author of disorder. So that's the problem. Now you might be thinking, well, why doesn't Paul just get right to the problem? Because he needs to lay the groundwork for the problem. Paul likes to do this. Paul is a consummate teacher. Paul is a, a, a very gifted spokesman and teacher and theologian. And, and in order to address the problem, he realizes, because he knows this church well, right? He knows where they've come from. He knows what they've been through. He's been with them for a period of time. He's corresponded with them for a period of time. So he knows this church quite well. And he's like, okay, look, we need to lay some groundwork. So the roadmap essentially is this. So in chapter 12, what you're going to see is sort of like the theology of spiritual gifts. Where do they come from? What is their purpose? And how should they function in the body? Chapter 13 is... The, you know, now, we look at it as the famous love chapter, right? Chapter is often read in churches for weddings. But it's interesting and kind of ironic, in a wedding, which is a wonderful occasion in which two people are being joined together in the covenant of marriage, you read this chapter, but then what you don't realize is that what is the context of chapter 13? It's in the context of a church that was chaotic, disordered, split, having uh, factions, 
you had rich people dis- disrespecting poor people. You had uh, sin going on, idolatry. You had sexual immorality going on. And in the middle of all that going on, you've got this gem of a chapter, chapter 13. But the context is that the spiritual gifts ought to be exercised in an atmosphere of love. Love ought to be the, the, the action that sort of permeates all of the spiritual gifts. Because if you do not exercise your spiritual gifts in love for one another, in love for the Lord, in love for the church, then your gifts are useless. They are worse than useless. They are nothing. Which is why that wonderful chapter begins with words we all know so well. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, what am I? I'm just a noisy sounding brass and clanging cymbal. You're like the little energizer bunny who's just sitting there banging those cymbals together. That's, you know, if you don't speak your tongues in love, you're just noise. If I have prophecy and understanding and can understand all mysteries and have all knowledge and have all faith and so on and so forth, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I, give, if I have all these gifts of mercy and generosity and giving and love, and, or not love, but uh, you know, giving your goods to feed the poor, giving your body to be burned, you do not have love, it profits you nothing. So if you do not exercise your spiritual gifts in an air of love, you are a noisy, clanging symbol who is nothing and it profits you nothing. So the theology of gifts, the proper exercise with love of gifts, and then he finally gets in chapter 14 to what is the crux of the problem in Corinth, and that is the exercise of the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. The gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. So Paul then goes on in chapter 14 to talk about those two gifts. And then finally, after all of that's done, then in verse 26 of chapter 14, he addresses the problem. You are a chaotic, disorderly bunch. You need to get your act together. You need to do things uh, decently and in order. And then he gives them the exhortation. But he doesn't do that until he has laid all of this groundwork, which is what we see in these three chapters. So that's the roadmap as we get into this passage. Now, I was looking back in my uh, files and stuff and noticed that when we went through our study in the book of Romans, there was a section there in Romans chapter 12 that also addressed spiritual gifts. So we're kind of getting this again. It's been a little bit over a year because I believe when we did that in Romans chapter 12, it was May of last year. Um, I mean, heck, I don't remember what I did last week half the time, much less over a year ago. So you know, the Bible repeats things, and we repeat things. So if the Bible says it twice, we're going to go over it twice. That's just the way it is. I'm just going to, you know, we, last time we left off at chapter 11, verse 34, I have to pick up at chapter 12, verse 1. So if this is repetitious, blame the Bible. Don't blame me. But we talked on, we talked then about spiritual gifts as well, and I want to address a subject. We may have addressed it then. I, I, I don't recall. I didn't look fully in all the notes and everything. But um, when, you, when, you, when it comes to spiritual gifts, 
Spiritual gifts and, and their exercise and everything is, is hotly debated in the Christian church. Now, it's not the question as to whether or not we have spiritual gifts. That's not the question. The question always seems to revolve around the so-called miracle gifts, sign gifts, however you want to define them. And those gifts tend to be speaking in tongues, prophecy, healing. Okay? Spiritual tongues, prophecy, healing. Now we know the, these are active in Bible times, right? Because we see them happening. We see people speaking in tongues. We see people prophesying. We see gifts of healing or casting out of demons, other miraculous works. I'm just lumping them all into healings. The question becomes, are those gifts, as stated, still active today or not? And that's where the divide is. That's where, the, the, that's where there is division in the Christian church. And I want to make that very specific. Division in the Christian church. Just because, you know, if you hold one view or the other, doesn't mean that your view or the other view is unchristian, okay, or non-Christian. Now, in your, in your handout there, you notice where it says continuation or cessation. That's the, that's the question. Do the sign gifts, tongues, prophecy, healings, are they in continuance today, to be active today, to be practiced today in the church, or have they ceased and by ceased, meaning ceased as of the establishment of the church in the first century and the establishment of the canon of Scripture. Now, just laying my cards out on the table, if you don't remember, I may not have said this, I hold to a cessationist uh, point of view. So in other words, the gift of tongues, healings, and prophecy as we see practiced in the New Testament times, have for the most part ceased with the closing of the New Testament canon and with the establishment of the New Testament church. The reason I hold that is because, biblically speaking, as I've been studying the Bible, biblically speaking, miraculous sign gifts seem to center around and seem to be for the purpose of establishing a new uh, period of redemptive history, a new phase in redemptive history. If you look at way, the way the Bible is um, laid out, you see miracles occur typically throughout, but they're clustered in big chunks at certain points of time. And the first big cluster of miracles is during the time of Moses, when Moses was leading the people of Israel out of Egypt to the promised land that was accompanied by great signs and wonders and miracles. But once they were out and once they were established in the promised land, the signs and the miracles no longer served a purpose. Same thing happens during the time of the prophets in the Old Testament. When the prophets came, started coming out, those, those the times of the prophets, again, were often accompanied by great signs and wonders. Think of the works that Elijah and Elisha had done. Great signs and wonders to attest to the fact that they were prophets speaking forth the Word of God. Then the third big cluster 
of miracles, of course, comes around the time of Jesus. The establishment of the new covenant. The, the, the moving out of the old dispensation into the new dispensation. The moving away from the old covenant into the new covenant. The inauguration of the kingdom of God. And the great work of atonement that Jesus performs as the greater Moses. Freeing us not from bondage in a country, but freeing us from bondage to our sin. And again, Jesus coming and the establishment of the church is accompanied by great signs and wonders. Jesus performed many miracles. The apostles performed many miracles. But then with the establishment of the church, with the closing of the New Testament canon, I believe that signs and wonders, the miraculous gifts of tongues, prophecy, and healings, has for the most part ceased. Now when I say that, I don't want to be seen as limiting the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can act and do whatever He wants. He doesn't need my permission, right? He doesn't need to consult me. The Holy Spirit can do what He wants. But what we see normally is that we don't see great signs and wonders anymore. Now that's my view. That's the cessationist view. But there are still those within Christian circles, brothers and sisters in Christ, who hold to a continuationist model, a continuationist view that the sign gifts of tongues, prophecies, and even healings are still active today. Now, a lot of these are sort of uh, clustered, if you will, in denominations that are uh, along Pentecostal lines or along charismatic lines, though there are strains within other denominations that are charismatic um, there are some charismatic Catholics and charismatic Lutherans and you know, charismatic evangelicals, but for the most part, they cluster in Pentecostal or charismatic type churches. And in those churches, they still believe in the continuation of the spiritual gifts. That the uh, sign gifts, particularly tongues, particularly tongues, is still active. And, and, and tongues are a sign of what they would call the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is, a, in a sense, a second blessing. Right? You are brought to faith in Christ. You are saved. All that's good. But until you get that second blessing, which is manifested in the speaking forth in tongues, you have, you're, you're still like in kindergarten Christianity. Okay? You're, you're not, you haven't graduated. You're still in elementary school. You haven't gone on to secondary school. Uh, you need that second blessing of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not to say that all Charismatics and all Pentecostals think the same thing. And, and I don't want to lump the Charismatics and the Pentecostals in the same group as what you see these charlatans on TV like Benny Hinn or Kenneth Copeland or T.D. Jakes, or these other word of faith types and, and miracle healer types that you, know, you see on, on TBN or some other um, you know, TV channels. And I'm just going to go right out and say it. They're false teachers. They're false teachers. Because they go around claiming to have new revelation from God. And, the, and when they speak in tongues, it's like a, a sideshow. 
It's a circus when they speak in tongues. And it's, to, to our ears, it's just gibberish. And in fact, they will even tell you in order to sort of work that gift up in you, in order to be able to speak in tongues, you just sort of start jammering nonsensically and then it just kind of flows out. Those are charlatans. Those are false teachers. I mean, if anyone goes around saying, I've got a new revelation from God, you better have a pen and paper and write that down because then we need to add that on to the end of the Bible, right? Either Revelation chapter 23 or just a new book entirely. I do not want to lump that circus that you see on TV with other Pentecostals. Not all Pentecostals are like that. Not all Charismatics are like that. But they do believe in the exercise of the miraculous gifts. Now, why do they believe that? Because I just went through and I kind of hopefully gave you a pretty uh, persuasive argument as to why I think the sign gifts have, have, have ceased. Why do the Charismatics and the Pentecostals believe that they continue? Well, take your, uh, uh, keep your place in 1 Corinthians 12 and turn to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter, start in chapter 2. You know this passage well. This is the Pentecost passage. We're going to look at three passages in the book of Acts that uh, serve as a support for... Uh, the, the charismatic position. So in, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, you know the passage well, day of Pentecost, Jesus has ascended, uh, the Jews gather together, the remaining disciples gather together on the day of Pentecost, a, a uh, high holy feast day for the Jews. And in chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there, were, there came a sound from heaven as of a right, rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So there you have it. That's the first passage. The disciples are gathered together on the, on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit fills them. And they speak in tongues. Now, flip over to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. This is the passage in which um, Peter is called to preach at the house of Cornelius. The house of Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile. And he is a God-fearing Gentile. And... Um, you know that story well too, right? He re- Peter receives a vision of the, the picnic blast, blanket being um, spread before him in this vision and God uh, tells him, you know, take, kill and eat. You know, there's all these kinds of clean and unclean animals and, and then God tells him, look, you need to go to this guy's house. He's going to come. He's going to send messengers and you need to preach to him. So he does. And people believe. And then in chapter 10, verse 44, we read this. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter. So Peter came with an entourage. 
because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit fills the disciples, they speak in tongues. Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit fills the household of Cornelius, they speak in tongues. One more passage, please. Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. This is the end of Paul's uh, second missionary journey. Maybe the beginning of his third. Anyway, he's on his way. He stops in Ephesus. And while he's there in Acts chapter uh, 19, we read this. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, Christ, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. So there you have it. Three passages in Acts where... There's preaching, or the filling of the Holy Spirit, and then it it manifests itself in tongues, and in this case, not only tongues, but prophesying as well. Now, we have other cases in the Bible where one is filled with the Spirit and they begin to prophesy, so that's, that's neither here nor there. So the Pentecostals read this, and the Charismatics read this, and they say, see, this is a normal practice. It's three times in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit fills you, you speak in tongues. So you need to have the second blessing, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, and then that manifests itself in speaking in tongues. If you you don't speak in tongues, you don't have that second blessing, and you're kind of in this sort of, I'm saying this pejoratively in a sense, but you, you sort of have this second class citizenship in the Christian church. So how do we respond to this? How do we respond to this? Well, we respond to this by saying that the book of Acts, along with the four Gospels, are foundational for the church. They are the narrative portions of the New Testament. And there is a rule of interpretation that gets hammered in seminary students myself included, and that rule is narrative is not normative. Narrative is not normative. Now, it's not a hard and fast rule in the sense that it's always 100% applicable. It's not to say that you can't find norms or principles in the narrative sections. That's not what I'm saying. But the point is, is that the narrative sections of the Bible are mainly concerned with telling you what happened and not in necessarily telling you what ought to happen. Because there are many narrative portions in, in the Bible that I could point to that describe horrific acts. Horrific acts committed by 
godly people. To which are we supposed to say, well, should we then follow those acts because they're in, in the narrative portions of Scripture? Or are we supposed to go and do likewise? No. Narrative tells you what happened. Not necessarily, and I'm being very careful there, not necessarily what ought to happen. That's why we have all of these epistles. The, the, the letters that Paul wrote to the churches. The letters that Peter and James and John and whoever wrote the book of Hebrews wrote to the churches to explain what the Gospels and the book of Acts happened. To explain what happened and to then give us principles to apply to our lives. So the book of Acts, including, along with the Gospels, is that sort of narrative portion. It is the history of salvation. It is, it is describing what happened. Not necessarily describing what ought to happen in the churches. And, and the book of Acts is, as I said earlier, it's foundational. It's laying the foundation of the church. It's telling you the, the history and the birth of the church of Jesus Christ after Jesus ascended into heaven. And, and as such, there are many things in the Gospels and the book of Acts that are non-repeatable. You want an example? I'll give you an example. The crucifixion. Should we go around because Jesus was crucified and we have this, what would Jesus do? Well, he would get crucified. So should we get crucified in our churches? Another silly example, the resurrection. Jesus was resurrected three days, in three days after being crucified. Should we then get crucified and then rise from the grave three days later? Is that what we ought to do? I mean, it's what's going to happen at the end of the age when Christ returns, but it's not a normative practice in the church. And I would argue also that the book of Acts, particularly Pentecost, is a non-repeatable uh, narrative portion of Scripture that lays the foundation for the church. And these other little mini-Pentecosts that you see is just as the church goes forth. Because the, 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 the order in Acts is, you know, we see that in chapter 1, verse 8. Starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the world. And that's how you see it here. You know, it happens to the Jews in Jerusalem. It happens in Samaria in chapter 8. It happens to the Gentiles in chapter 10. And now we're here at the, end, at the ends of the earth in chapter 19 of the book of Acts. So again, I would continue to argue and state my case that these miraculous sign gifts, tongues, prophecies, healings, have ceased for the most part in the church today. Again, leaving the door open for the Holy Spirit to work as He will. So, now, with that out of the way, as we head into our passage this morning, and I really need to pick up the pace here, uh, we're going to see here, Paul begins this section on the theology of the spiritual gifts. And these first uh, 11 verses is meant essentially to teach us what we have there. There is a diversity of of gifts, but it's the same Holy Spirit who... Um, distributes them into the church as he wills. So you've got, that's the unity part. The unity is in the Spirit who gives the gifts. The diversity are the types of gifts that are distributed throughout the church. So, 
Let's begin uh, in verses 1 through 3. What we see here is Paul begins with a sort of a life before and after the Spirit. Verses 1 through 3. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the, by the Holy Spirit. So Paul begins this section first by the, you know, the fact that he's talking about spiritual gifts, this now concerning. It's, it's a formula we've seen several times already. We saw it in chapter 8, now concerning things offered to idols. Uh, we saw it in chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. So he, it's, just, it's just signaling that he's beginning a new topic, and the topic is spiritual gifts. Now, if you have a new King James, the word gifts is italicized. It literally reads, now concerning spirituals. And we're not sure if it's spiritual things or spiritual people, because the word in the Greek, pneumaticon, uh, that's plural, uh, is pneumaticos. Uh, the word can be both masculine or neuter. Um, but given the context of what Paul is talking about here, and what we see in chapter 14, verse 1, where Paul says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, I think the translators made a, a perfectly acceptable choice by putting the word gifts in there. So now concerning spiritual gifts. Well, what about spiritual gifts, Paul? What do you want, them to, what, what do you want to teach us about spiritual gifts? Well, Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant. Now, in other places, Paul will say things like, do you not know? And then when Paul says, do you not know, he means you know this. And I'm just reminding you in a sort of, slightly rebuking kind of way, <laughs> okay? In other words, you ought to know this. Why, why, why have you forgotten this? Do you not know? When he, Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant, this is more like, all right, you need more teaching on this. Perhaps I didn't teach you well enough when I was there in Corinth, so let me instruct you further so, I, so that you're not ignorant. So Paul here is more like calling them in and says, okay, come on, guys, let's huddle together Let's talk about these things called spiritual gifts because what's going on in your church is a mess and I really, I don't want you to be ignorant. This is for your own benefit. So he goes on, verse 2. You know that you were Gentiles. Now if you have an ESV or any, pretty much anything other than a New King James or King James, you probably have the word pagans there. It's the word ethne, so Gentiles is typically the, the translation that you will see or nations. It can mean pagans. Um, you know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. So this is the life before the Spirit. And we've mentioned this before in our study through 1 Corinthians, that the Corinthians were a highly pagan city and church and culture and people. It was a, again, Corinth is a, a Mecca in a sense. It is a very cosmopolitan city. People from all over the Roman Empire have, you know, in, it come through Corinth. It sits in a very strategic location. And, and as such, it's the home of a lot of pagan idolatry. 
In fact, you know, we know that they were very idolatrous because we just spent three chapters with Paul telling him to flee idolatry. So we know they had an idolatry problem. And here the thing is, when you were Gentiles, when you were pagans, when you were unbelievers, you were carried away to these dumb idols. Not dumb as in duh, dumb, like dumb idol. No, dumb as in mute, unspeaking, silent idols. And he says, however you were led. And that phrase there, however you were led, speaks of being led away to prison. That's the concept of that word. In other words, when you were in your pagan uh, practices, before you came to Christ, when you were celebrating pagan rituals, you were carried away in all kinds of weird things. All kinds of ecstasy and all kinds of exuberance in your worship services. And you were carried away to these mute, dumb idols, which Paul had said previously are nothing, but now we know also that are really demonic. So Paul says, look, in your previous life, you were carried away to these things. You were led away by these things. Your worship was chaotic and everything in your pre-Christian lives. So remember that. I do not want you to be ignorant. Remember your old way of life. But do not carry that into the Christian, your, now, your, your new Christian life. Therefore, in verse 3, he says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, as we're going to get through this, we're going to find out that Tongues and prophecy, we mentioned this a little bit in the beginning. Tongues and prophecies were the, 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 the two gifts that they really latched on to a lot. They thought those were the two most important gifts. And they thought tongues was the most important gift. And part of that is because in their pagan way of thinking, pagan way of worshiping, tongue speaking was sort of like communing with the gods. And they would do so in, in gibberish, in, in, in nonsensical languages. So here they are, they think tongues is the thing, and since the Spirit often manifests, manifests itself in the speaking of tongues, they thought this was the greatest gift. The problem was, if in their practice, they start, of, start introducing their pagan way of doing things into the Christian church, it could have led some of them to even start saying, Jesus is accursed. And Paul is saying here, look, you need to know that if you are speaking by the Spirit of God, if your, your gift of tongues is truly given to you by the Spirit of God, you would never say Jesus is accursed. Because no one speaking by the Spirit of God would ever say Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord unless He is speaking by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, whatever you're doing in your Christian worship there in Corinth, he is saying, look, you need to discern. If you've got some people saying Jesus is a curse and they're prophesying that or they're, they're speaking that in tongues, then you need to know that is not a spiritual gift. That is not something that comes from the Spirit. That is something that is pagan and demonic. Because the Spirit would never speak against the Son in that manner. 
And consequently, no one can say Jesus is Lord unless they are filled with the Spirit. I don't mean they can't say the words. They can't mean it. Okay? So, life before and after the Spirit. Now, in verses 4 through 6, we're going to see here the work of the triune God in the church through the gifts. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are diverse differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are differences of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. So, okay, first, so he lays the groundwork. If you're saying Jesus is a curse, that ain't from the Spirit of God, and you can only say Jesus is Lord through the Spirit of God. Now let's lay some groundwork on these gifts. All right, we've already told you what a true gift and a false gift is. Let's lay the groundwork for these gifts. And the first thing you need to know of, there are a diversity or various kinds or allotments of gifts. But it's the same Spirit that gives them. Likewise, and similarly, there are differences of ministries. There are different areas of service in which you can use those gifts that the Spirit gave you, but it is all for one Lord. Every ministry in the church in which you exercise the gift that the Spirit has given you is all for the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, there are different diversities of activities. There are many things you can be doing in your ministries, with your gifts, but it is all for the same God who works everything, all in all. Or all things in all. In other words, the work of the triune God is seen here in the diversities of gifts, in the differences of ministries, and the diversity of activities. And what we see in the triune God is the perfect harmony of diversity and and unity. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God. Always working together in harmony. Never working at cross purposes to one another. Never is the Spirit working against the Son. The Son against the Father. And so on. And that's how it's reflected in the church. You have unity and diversity in the church. The diversity is in the multitude of gifts that the Spirit gives out. The unity is in the ministry of the church. The unity is in the fact that the Spirit is the one who gives you all of these gifts. So just as there is unity and diversity in the Trinity, there is unity and diversity in the gifts. And this is going to be important as we move on because, again, the, the, the Corinthians were emphasizing tongues and they were looking down on people who did not have the gift of tongues as lesser Christians. Sound familiar? Sorry, Pentecostal and charismatic brothers and sisters. Any who may be listening to this later. And Paul is saying, look, that's not how it is. Everyone is gifted. And it's the Spirit who gives them. If the Spirit gives you tongues, that's fine and good. But the Spirit, that same Spirit that gave you tongues, this other fellow, this, the, the ministry or the gift of, let's say, charity or helps or, or service or faith. 
You may be out there with your tongues or you're prophesying, serving in a, diff- in, a, in a prominent ministry in the church, but don't look down on your brother and sister who has the, the gift of helps or service, who is working behind the scenes, making sure that everything is going well in the church. I thank God that we have in this church people who work behind the scenes that you never know about, doing all kinds of things that you never know about. But it's so vital to the, to the operation of the church. So you've got unity and diversity in the Trinity, unity and diversity in the gifts that are given. And these variety of gifts, verses 7 through 11, are for one purpose and one purpose only. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit. Sensing a pattern there, the same Spirit, the same Spirit. To another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So you got a little bit of a sandwich here, right? But verses 7 and 11 are kind of getting this idea across that there are a variety of gifts, but it's one Spirit and they're used for one purpose. And then in between verses 8 through 10 is a list of the spiritual gifts. So we see here, the Spirit gives these gifts to each one for what? The profit of all. For the benefit of all. The gifts are given to you so that you will use them for the benefit of the church. So first thing to note is that each person has a gift. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one. There are no first and second tier Christians. There are no Christians with gifts and Christians without gifts. Each Christian has a spiritual gift. And when I say that each Christian has a spiritual gift, I don't mean it's just you have the gift of X. Your gift is more than likely, and I think I, be, I believe I taught this when I taught Romans 12, your gift is sort of a, a, a combination of several things. It's probably a little bit of this, a little bit of that, wrapped up in one nice little spiritual gift with a little bow on it, and it's your gift, your charismata, your gift of grace. That's what the word is, spiritual gifts. Um, or just gifts, charismatone, charismata, charisma. You know, we get the word charisma from it. So each one has a gift and is for the profit of all. And it is the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who works all these things, verse 11, distributing each one individually as He wills. So that is the purpose. The purpose is for the unity of the church, for the edification of the church, for the building up of the church, for the profit of the church, 
The gifts are given for the service of the ministry. Gifts are given for ministries and activities. And all these things serve together to promote the gospel, to promote the kingdom of God, to exalt the name of Christ, and all these things. And then again in verses 8-10 through we see a list here of gifts. I think, I believe there are nine gifts. You've got word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, healings, miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. So nine gifts. Now, because we're running short on time, I'm not going to go through each of these and give you a definition. And I wasn't intending to do that anyway, even if we did have the time. And the reason I don't want to do that is because different people are going to define these gifts different ways. And I don't want to say, this is what it means and this is only what it means. Okay? Because someone else could say that and it would be contradictory or maybe not the same thing. But first of all, notice a couple of things about these lists. There are several lists, okay? When we looked at Romans 12, there was a list of gifts there. You'll see another list of giftings in Ephesians chapter 4. And you'll see a list of giftings in 1 Peter chapter 4. And if we had time, I would look through those passages. And, but just take it, take, you, can look at, you can look them up on your own. But the, the takeaway from all these different lists is this. First of all, the lists don't all, they're not all the same. Some are shorter, some are longer. Some things are included in multiple lists, but maybe excluded in one. So the point to take away is none of these lists should be seen as an exhaustive, this is the list of spiritual gifts, these and these only. This is a sample listing. This is sort of like, for example, here are some of the gifts, okay? So that's one thing to take away from from this list. Second, it's interesting that Paul, notice what Paul does is he lists prophecy and tongues at the end. Now in doing so, he's not saying that these are lesser gifts, but you could tell when people, when a person's trying to make a point and they give you a list of things, usually the thing at the end is the thing they want you to remember. Okay? So it's like, look, here are some of the gifts. These are the gifts that are given by the Spirit. And along with all these other gifts, there are also the gifts of prophecy and tongues, which I'm going to talk to you about later. But the point of adding them there at the end is to show, look, all of these are given by the same Spirit who distributes each gift as He wills. So if He's given you a gift, you shouldn't think that you're something special because you have what they think is a special gift. Nor should you think you're something lesser because you have something that you think is a lesser gift. And again, like I said, I, I would like to go through some of these and give you some definitions, but um, you, there are other commentaries that do this. The thing is, in some of them, it's hard to determine whether Paul's intending to uh, say these things as, as, as if they are sort of like miraculous gifts, or do they have a sort of a more normal understanding, or do they have both? Like, for example, word of wisdom. What does that mean? Is that a miraculous word of wisdom in which you have the wisdom to understand mysteries and things unrevealed? 
Or is it just the ordinary gift of being wise and being able to discern and being able to uh, you know, skillfully weave your way through things and understand things? Same thing with the gift of knowledge. Is it a miraculous gift of knowledge in which you are sort of you know, direct feed given something from God that you shouldn't know, but you just seem to know for that purpose? People have said that. You know, you'll get this like, you know, you hear stories of a guy who comes up to a minister and a minister will say, you need to stop doing X. Now the minister's never met this person before, but they'll say, well, I was given a, you know, I was given a word of knowledge from the Lord and I just knew that that individual had this problem and I just spoke the truth to him. Maybe that's so. Or is the word of knowledge just being able to read and understand and be able to explain the word of God and the truths of the Christian faith uh, in a way that is... Uh, uh, understandable by many? Is it sort of uh, the word of knowledge? Is that something that you need as far as to exercise the gift of teaching? Who knows? The thing is, I could give you definitions that I glean from other sources. And I, I, I want to avoid that because the point of this is not to tell you what the spiritual gifts are. The point of this is to tell you that the Spirit is the one who gives the spiritual gifts. And he gives the spiritual gifts for the profit of all, for the building up of the church. That's the important thing here. So, as we bring this to a close, I did get through the passage, um, so thank you. Um, As we bring this to a close here, Paul is going to spend quite a bit of time on spiritual gifts. And he's going to do so because this church was really messed up. But what we need to take away from this is that within the church, the Holy Spirit is working. And he is working to give each one of you a God-ordained charismata, a gift of grace that is for you to use in the church, for the ministry of the church. And we ought to use our gifts. We ought to use the gifts that God has given us in order for building up the church. And another thing I heard, and I thought was pretty, pretty uh, a cool idea, is when you look at these gifts, they're all manifested in Jesus Christ, right? Who, didn't, who had a w- word of wisdom better than Jesus Christ? Who had a word of knowledge other than Jesus Christ? Who had an enormous faith other than Jesus Christ? or gift of healings, or working of miracles, or prophecy. All of these things are manifested in Jesus Christ. And then what, what, what we have here in the spiritual gifts then is taking all these things that were sort of bundled up in Christ and shining it like a light through a prism, and then that prism then splits the light off into the entire body of Christ so that we all, sort of in a sense, share in the giftedness of Jesus Christ. Because the body, as we're going to see, Lord willing, in two weeks, the body is to be is, is a, a, a multiplicity of members in one body whose head is Christ. So we are all in a way reflecting Christ with these spiritual gifts. Christ who had them all, and we who have them in part, distributed by the will of God through the Spirit who gives to each one as He decides, as He 
wills. So we'll stop here. Again, next time on the 21st of August, I'm away next week on vacation, we'll attempt to tackle the rest of chapter 12. And you may be thinking you're going to be able to get through 19 verses. Well, come back in two weeks and find out, but we'll stop here.